Welcome to Invisible Arts with Richard Gibbs, brought to you by Armory of Harmony. My Life in Porn. That episode title got your attention, didn't it? Two things you need to know straight away. First, no, I have never and will never appear in a porno movie. Second, this episode ends with an X-rated line. So if you're listening to this within earshot of little ones, be prepared to answer at least one very uncomfortable question. Consider yourself warned. As I mentioned in the episode, Never Be Home, I was fired from my first day job in L.A. as a keyboard salesman at West L.A. Music. Deservedly so, I might add. I was a complete nobody, and now, even worse, an unemployed nobody. My homie, Ron Condon, check out only a dad episode for him, called me up and said he had pitched me to write some music for a cheesy movie. What kind of cheesy, I asked. Well, softcore porn. Hmm, go on. First, you should know, Ron Condon has paid his dues to get into the entertainment business. Lifelong watermen, surfers, and cinematographers, Ronnie and his brother Bob ran a surf shop in our hometown before starting out by making surf films. Ron has been at the forefront of technological advances in the wild field of open ocean filming. The work he did on Point Break changed the rules. He partnered with his friend Scott Watkins, freestyle jet ski world champion, and came up with a new way to film big wave surfing. You and Scott developed this way of filming on heavy, heavy big waves. I said to him, I said, Scott, I got to figure another way to film, you know. I got to figure a way to make a dolly shot in the water so we can track with um, the surfers. And so we basically designed a two-seater. It was like the first two-person jet ski. And we dropped in on a wave. It worked so, so well. You know, uh, when I was looking through the viewfinder, it was exactly what I was envisioning. He's hauling ass on a jet ski in front of the surfers, and you're sitting backwards with this big old heavy... Yeah, they're pretty heavy cameras. And of course, the waterproof housing has to at least double the weight. Right. And you're holding it on your shoulder. It's like that old joke about Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Yeah, well, she did the same thing backwards in heels. I love surfing, and I want to try to make a 3D surf movie. That's when I reached out to that company, StereoVision, because StereoVision is 3D. The owner and proprietor of StereoVision, coincidentally, had the same uncommon last name as Bob and Ron Condon. His name was Chris Condon. This is one of those stories that only Quentin Tarantino could tell, and no one would believe it. Chris Condon was an expert and sought-after lens maker who custom-made beautiful lenses for the A-list cinematographers in Hollywood. You need a lens that has built-in mirrors and a right angle to shoot around corners? Chris was the man via his company, Century Lenses. Back in the 60s, Chris started experimenting with reviving that movie fad from the 50s, 3D. It had fallen out of favor due to the gimmickry and, importantly, 
the much higher costs involved in both shooting and projecting those films. But Chris had come up with a genius solution. He designed a much more elegant 3D camera and projection system that only needed a single camera body and a single projector. When he pitched it around to all the big studios, however, no one was biting. 3D was a fad long gone, he was told. So he partnered up with the screenwriter and director. I use those terms loosely here to come up with a way to demonstrate the beauty of his system. They needed something cheap and easy to make that execs would at least take a look at. Porn was the answer. Softcore porn. For those who don't know, softcore means there are plenty of naked body parts, female at least, and all of the sex is simulated. Like Game of Thrones. The close-to-zero-budget movie they made did not have the effect they desired. Still no takers. Chris was hardly the stereotypical porno producer. He dressed and comported himself like middle management in a bank. Not like Burt Reynolds in Boogie Nights. No chains, no mustache or exposed chest hair. Always wore a modest two-piece suit every day. He and his sweet wife Marge had been married straight out of high school. The demo movie they made had a nominal plot about scantily clad stewardesses and their shenanigans, cleverly titled The Stewardesses. Chris was about to abandon the project when he was introduced to some genuine sleazy porn purveyors. They offered to distribute his film with breasts and buttocks bouncing in 3D off the screen in their theater chain, Pussycat Theaters. Bingo. Huge hit. The movie grossed millions, the exact amount will never be known due to the shadiness of that business. He told me years later that he was as shocked as anyone. He said he would go stand in line with eager attendees to find out why they were standing outside in broad daylight to see a 3D porno movie. He told me one nice young couple told him that they heard it was so bad that you had to see it to believe it. Chris did manage to walk away with a big hunk of cash, maybe a million and open his dream business called Stereovision, with hopes of spreading the 3D gospel to mainstream movies. He also invested heavily in a small luxury commuter airline called Trans Sierra. Sadly, one of the planes crashed, killing 31 passengers. Chris lost his investment in the ensuing legal actions. So now what, he thought? I know, I will make another 3D softcore porn film didn't occur to him that lightning doesn't strike the same place twice very often. He dubbed this one The Surfer Girls. Plot and setting and casting obvious. He needed some shots of legit surfers on legit waves in Hawaii. That's where Bob and Ron Condon entered the story. We actually filmed some scenes for him out there in Hawaii, and I had to ask the girl to take her top off and you know, do some surfing. We did some long lens footage. Oh my God, how embarrassing. Hey, we're making this surf movie, but you kind of have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I just say, you know, pretend you're in Tahiti. I went to the Stereovision shop to meet Chris. He could not have been nicer. He said he had a budget of $900 total and needed about 60 to 70 minutes of music that he could cut into the movie. I did a quick mental calculation figuring that I could write a bunch of jazz melodies and hire four musicians at $75 each to jam on those melodies for a couple of hours in a cheap studio 
and I should be able to pocket four or $500. Done deal, I said. The StereoVision shop was kind of a classic old factory setup with a small manager's office kind of up a flight of stairs and looked down upon the shop floor. Chris had set that up as his editing room. Chris showed me some scenes on an old film editing machine called an upright movieola. The movie was comically bad. Not comical, just comically bad. But I didn't care. I was going to use a pseudonym anyway, and I really needed the money right away. However, it was clear that the movie was nowhere near being ready for music. The musical score is usually the last major element added to a film, and Chris had a mess on his hands. He was editing the film himself, and it was obvious that he had no idea what he was doing. I asked him if he needed an assistant editor. He asked me if I knew how to edit film on a movieola. Sure, I lied. My film scoring classroom at Berkeley had an old movieola parked in the corner as a kind of prop used to describe the process of scoring movies. I had actually brushed against it once or twice and had read the chapter in the book that described what that contraption was. So for present purposes, I was a film editor and I needed a job. Chris hired me on the spot. That's Hollywood. You know, you walk into these situations and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I'm an editor. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Hollywood's filled with those stories. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. The road to get started in show business, whether as an editor, director, actor, dancer, or rock star, rarely follows a straight line. Just ask Jonathan Davis, lead vocalist for Corn. Cleaning instruments, bagging groceries, gutting human beings. In high school, we have um, a program called Regional Occupation Program, and that's where kids would go. And You could be a nurse, you could do this, you can be an EKG tech, you could be a respiratory therapist tech. Well, my sick ass decided to to ask about the coroner's office. I was 16, I believe. (laughs) Okay. I had to go in, and they said, okay, but you have to go, and you have to interview and do all this stuff. So I got in a suit and everything. I walked in there, and I talked to the coroner. There's another image I'm enjoying for a second. You in a suit. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So I get in my suit and I go in and I do my interview. So they just wanted to interview me and see if I was mature enough and I could actually handle what I was wanting to do. They had one of the investigators take me into the back into the morgue. And that's when I saw my first dead body. And my life was never the same after that. Whew. It's, it's really sobering. And at that age, I was just like, scary movies, horror films, slashers, you see all this guts, but nothing compares to a real human being dead laying there on a table that you know is going to get cut open. So were you performing autopsies in yourself? I could get them from tongue to asshole in about seven minutes. And it's all in one piece, and you take it and pick it all up, the viscera up, and put it on the dissecting table, and then the doctor would cut and take pieces of each organ and put it in a jar for later toxicology and pathology examination, and then on to the next. It was high school, so I'd come in, and my first part of the morning of school was me doing that for four or five hours. And then I'd take lunch, and I'd go back to school, and I'd had three classes, and I was done for the day. So you're, like, removing kidneys and livers and stomachs and intestines and hearts? Yeah. You're actually cutting them out of the body? Yeah. And then going and eating lunch? Then go eat lunch, and then go to school. (laughs) Man, you make up jokes, you make up things to make it seem like it's not real because you go crazy and in in the end i was way too young to be doing that and i got ptsd issues for years after that i was doing autopsies on infants kids five six years old just it was really really heavy man so um from a very early age i just you know I, i i saw the reality of what life can be and how evil humans can be and 
kind of fucked me up a little bit for a while, but I'm good now. Well, well relatively speaking. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> a floater is, we call those that have just been severely waterlogged. They'll drown and get stuck under a rock or something like that. They can be oh. under there for a minute. Uh-huh. They get mushy. Like, you could literally, like, pick it up and your hand will go into them. Oh. So, yeah, that I did that once i've done it to where i pulled him and i pulled a guy's chest hair all the way off just slid all off into my hands really gross nasty stuff i remember you telling me something about how you and a couple other guys were pulling the body out and the body burst and everything guts and everything spilled all over you yeah i mean i was pulling over trying to get the sheet out you'll tuck it under the body and then roll them the other way and you can pull the sheet out well sometimes it's stuff if they're really um I don't know what the good word is, ripe. <laughs> the, the, the skin will stick to the sheets and all that stuff. So when I pulled it, I was inexperienced. I pulled it and I leaned it up against my body. When the body went over to go on the other side, you know, half the man's chest was stuck to my fucking apron. It just like things like that it just freaked me out. I remember another time we had a case where a couple guys got sucked into like this boiler thing. It was like a power plant. I can't remember. It was, I mean, this is years ago, but they literally got cooked. They break. They were a very weird texture. It was steamed human. It's not cool. Oh. And I don't even want to get into the smell. There's a lot of crazy ways to die. Those in the know know that the original progenitors of hard rock and heavy metal were not Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, nor were the Ramones and the Sex Pistols the first creators of punk music. All of those bands would be the first to point back to the godfathers of metal, hard rock, and punk, a band that started way back in 1964, the MC5. But had Wayne Kramer, the founding guitarist of that infamous ensemble, followed a different natural muse before starting the band, none of those genres may have ever existed. Kick out the jams, brother Wayne. I sold magazines door to door. I was very good at that. I could. I learned the secret, which was pour on the sugar. Okay. Hello, ma'am. Hello. How are you today? Hey, did you get a copy of Post this week? You know, it's my job to come around through the neighborhood and offer you something to make it up to. <laughs> Pick any two magazines. We'll send them out to you free. I mean, that's a calling there, Wayne. Sales. Sales, absolutely. Kick out the tail. It's hard enough getting started in the business, but what the grizzled veterans know is that it is even harder to hit the heights and then bottom out and scrape your way back. Years after the demise of the MC5, Wayne hit those depths and went back to manual labor to pay the piper all over again. I was living in Manhattan. Things got tough between gigs, and I took a job as a assistant to a roofer. And the guy that ran the company decided that I could run his hot tar operation. So one day, I'm standing on a rooftop in Brooklyn in the middle of the winter, 
and it's freezing cold out and I'm mopping this hot tar around the roof which is like steaming hot tar you know it sticks to your clothes you can't touch it because it'll burn you and I just had an epiphany that my life was not turning out the way I hoped it would like what am I doing here this is insane I'm an artist I can sing, I can dance, I can play the guitar, I can write a song. And here I am putting on hot tar on a roof in the middle of the winter in Brooklyn. It was a, a soul-crushing moment for me. Hey, Jonathan, didn't you once tell me that all of you guys in Corn once worked at a pizza hut? Well, after I did my apprenticeship, I couldn't work at the mortuary anymore. I had to go back to college and finish another semester to go be able to qualify to go take my test to get my license to be an embalmer and that's when i got a phone call for the guys to come trout and corn and then i made it for me to move out there i needed a job and the guys helped me get a job at pizza hut so i actually was started out as a cook and then became a shift manager uh the drummer david was a delivery driver and i think head did a little bit or monkey did on a bike wait monkey was a pizza hut bicycle delivery guy i think he did for a second but their main gig was him and head they were furniture movers my main gig was a pizza place. But I didn't care. It gave me enough money to eat and live, and I was just following my dream. I moved from Bakersfield down to Huntington Beach and was living in a closet, but I didn't care. I was going to make it. So back to my life in porn with Chris Condon, Stereovision, and the Surfer Girls. Chris edited the film at night after his normal business hours at Stereovision. I came in every morning to align the dialogue and the effects reels to the picture edits Chris had made the night before. Again, I use the word dialogue loosely here. Chris had somehow misplaced an entire 10-minute reel of dialogue. Most of it was easy enough to reproduce. A moan here, a whistle there, but there was one longish scene on a beach in Hawaii with a couple of bikinied actresses chatting up a shirtless local. Chris didn't know what was said. There was no screenplay to speak of. The shot was what they call a medium shot, not close up, but close enough that one could easily see on a big screen if the wrong dialogue was dubbed in. I had pretty much finished lining up all of the dialogue and effects except this scene. I kept asking Chris if he had found the dialogue yet. No luck. One day, Chris came bounding up to my little editing room in the sky. Rich, put up reel six. I have the answer. Did you find it? Nope. Did the girls remember what they said? Not a chance. Just put it up. I threaded the film into the moviola. The viewing screen on those old moviolas is tiny, maybe four inches by six inches. And the operator, me in this case, 
would have to hunch over to peer into it to discern any detail at all. Chris bounded back up. Meet Mary. I actually don't remember her name. I just call her that because she reminded me of an even more prim version of Mary Poppins. Somewhere between your mom and a librarian and you're in the ballpark. Pillbox hat with maybe even a little bit of veil netting. I looked at Chris. Really? Play her the scene. I suddenly realized from the way Mary said, Yes, please play it, what Chris was up to. Mary spoke with the unique sound that a deaf person uses that has learned to speak. Sort of marbled is the best description I can come up with. She was a lip reader. She had to pretty much perch her chin on my shoulder as I was operating the foot pedals so that we both could see. She picked off almost all of the lines flawlessly. But the one line that sticks in my memory was when she spoke into my ear whilst peering intently at the little screen. Mary Poppins, missing only her parasol, said, I'm not quite sure, but I think she said, I'd like to suck your cock. Could you play it again? You can't say I didn't warn you. Many famous people have followed similar paths. Sylvester Stallone actually acted in porn. Carlos Santana played guitar in incredibly seedy strip bars in Tijuana as a teenager. Me, I held down a lot of different jobs before I was able to make a living in music. Paperboy, lifeguard, cab driver, bouncer, night watchman, salesman, and probably my favorite, bicycle mechanic. Just know that any waiter, garbage man, plumber's assistant, Uber driver or sales clerk is likely to be a screenwriter, actor, or jazz trombonist to be. You never know, especially in Hollywood. Invisible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in beautiful Malibu, California. This is Brother Wayne Kramer from the MC5 hollering at you.